Welcome to What's at Stake, a Penta podcast. I'm your host, Brian DeAngelis. Today, we're going to talk about something that's on the minds of lots of business leaders everywhere and many of our clients, the Federal Reserve. For those of you who listen to our other podcast, the Macrocast, you know we talk about the Fed pretty much every week, uh, and especially for the past year or so, the Fed has been all over the news as it tries to rein in inflation and uh, obviously played a huge role in the response to the COVID-19 pandemic. What we want to do today is take a little bit of a step back and help our listeners understand the unique challenges facing the Fed right now, where we might be headed for the next year. And we'll get into a little bit of how the Fed works and operates. So those of you who are not as familiar with Fed speak as some of the rest of us will be able to navigate a lot of the news coming out in the coming weeks. I'm joined by by three guests familiar to all of our listeners. Uh, they are experts on the Fed and monetary policy. You know John Fagan and Brendan Walsh, the co-founders of Markets Policy Partners, and of course, our co-hosts on the Macrocast. Uh, by way of background, previously, John was director of the U.S. Treasury's Markets Room and a senior macro strategist for Discovery Capital Management. Brendan was a senior analyst at Discovery Capital Management covering global financial institutions. We also have Bri Odion Asine, founder of SW Insights and an alum of our work here at uh, now Penta, formerly Hamilton Place Strategies. SW Insights is a public policy advisory firm and as a former journalist with years of experience covering monetary policy, Bri is an expert on everything we'll, we'll talk about today. John, Brendan, Bry, that was a long intro, but genuinely, thank you for coming on and helping us with this topic, and welcome to this week's show. Thank you for having us. Uh, I'll start with with maybe a little bit of a, a jump ball, uh, and and John, I know you have some thoughts on this. Let's let's take a step back, as I said in the intro, and you know, right now we find the Fed in uncharted waters. You know, we've never come out of a global economic shutdown before. Uh, it was a crisis early in the stages of the pandemic when the Fed really stepped up and delivered a lot of support. Um, but obviously, there were big implications of that economically as well. We, we literally shut down, millions of jobs lost, um, and then a pretty quick kind of reopening overnight. Uh, it's led to a pretty rapid recovery, which brings a whole bunch of other noise to the table, inflation, other issues. Um, why is this such a unique moment for the Fed? And, and maybe if you don't mind, kind of give us a little bit of the history of kind of where the Fed was before this crisis, how it walked through it and, and where we are today. You've you've really framed it well, Brian. The Fed is in an unprecedented position for uh, for its uh, in its history. Uh, this is a, a neck snapping macro moment with the uh, with the pandemic shutting down the U.S. economy. The Fed marshaling an enormous amount of monetary easing to help counter that, and then the subsequent inflation uh, rebound that uh, that we saw happened through 2021 and uh, into 2022 resulted in a, a complete sea change in uh, Federal Reserve policy and resulting in the sharpest 
uptrend in interest rates. Uh, rate hikes have been steeper in this hiking cycle than in any in the past. And uh, and so the Fed is racking up a lot of firsts here. <laughs> and uh, this is uh, this very challenging uh, monetary environment has followed a period of, uh, I think, you know, what really makes this particularly special is that this could be a major paradigm shift in monetary policy. We're coming off of the low interest rate uh, ecosystem, essentially, that the Fed established in the wake of the global financial crisis, taking rates uh, over the period from uh, 2009 and, uh, and onward. Um, you know, back and forth, it was it was a, a very, very slow uh, recovery and rates only went up about as high as two point five percent in uh, in 20 uh, in 20 the end of 2018 uh, before the Fed really had to get into the cutting business again uh, to just to contextualize that rates. Uh, the top end of the, the rate range now is four point seven five percent. This is a, a complete departure from the low interest rate environment that a lot of people and a lot of market participants had anticipated would be, you know, a, a durable uh, kind of uh, situation for not just the Fed, but global central banks to be in for the you know foreseeable future. That's not how it's played out. And the Fed is uh, in the process of, you know, this very rapid, uh, potentially, uh, you know, paradigm shift into a higher equilibrium of interest rates. It's a, it's a really good point on, on 2008. I mean, we, in 12 years, we find ourselves with two economic crises for the for the history books um brendan bry let me give you guys a chance to to jump in here how do you guys think about the fed in terms of where we were coming out of 2008 and and what we're finding ourselves in now through the pandemic oh i think the contrast with i guess technically because the recession ended in 2009 i want to say i think coming out of that the focus was on you know inflation was at the very low level. So all the attention was on getting the economy, getting growth back and, you know, getting jobs numbers back up. So every time you saw a positive job number, that was cause for celebration. The contrast with now is that you have inflation being stubbornly high. And so the focus is not so much on job creation or on growth, but on getting price, um, the level of price increases to stabilize and slow down. And so I think what we're hoping for is stable growth, a slower pace of job creation and a much, you know, slower inflation rate. And it's just how you achieve all those three safely and without causing a major disruption. Um, it's, it's, I think that's what the Fed is dealing with right now. So Brian, break that down for us a, a little bit more. So the Fed obviously has a, a dual mandate as close to, kind of full employment as, as we can get and, you know, a, a target of around 2%, you know, in inflation, but generally keeping inflation low. We we are fast forwarding a little bit now, but we find ourselves in this moment where every month we seem to get a pretty strong jobs report that you see, obviously, the Biden administration and others celebrate uh, it sort of lands at the Fed as really kind of bad news because we're going to have to, as you were just saying, we're going to have to figure out something where in order to bring inflation down, the Fed might need to 
cause a bit of a recession and go against that that other goal. Talk to us a little bit about that mandate and and kind of what they're trying to solve there and maybe how difficult it will be to actually solve it. Well, yeah, so I, I think, you know, this dates back to the 70s and, you know, that the addition of that employment mandate to the Fed's, you know, existing inflation mandate. And I, I don't think, and, you know, the, the chaps here can correct me if I'm wrong, I don't remember any other time since then where they ever had to work at cross-purposes to either or. It usually was the case that, you know, working to bring down inflation was good for jobs and working to boost jobs, you know, didn't necessarily mean, you know, hyperactive inflation, but it seems to be the opposite now. Um, I do think though that because everything, all the data comes with a lag. So usually when we look at data in March, it's for February, right? And so it could be the case that all those strong job numbers we saw are not necessarily reflective of what's this, this situation right now because they're all backward looking and so it could be the case that the Fed is reacting to the data that actually is like not telling them the actual story of what's going on in this current environment. Inflation could be the same because it, weather played a big role in it. December was really cold right. and January was really, really warm. Um, so I think we're not going to really exactly know what the reality of the data is until we get March data, but we don't get March data until April. Brendan, talk, uh, if you don't mind, talk a little bit too about, you know, how inflation has been caused by what we were all doing during the pandemic as well. I mean, in a, in a nutshell, we're all sitting at home with lots of money to spend in part because of what the Fed and the legislative branch did. Like, w- walk us through that a little bit. Yeah, so... Coming coming into 2022, the, the Fed, you know, we, we the famous word transitory, and they thought that inflation was transitory. In the end, I think it, it is kind of proving to be transitory. The 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 pandemic induced inflation. It was just a lot higher and probably took lasted a lot longer than the Fed had imagined. But because we all stayed home and not went out to restaurants and bought things through Amazon, goods inflation went up really high. Also, we shut down the world. So, you know, things like semiconductor chips, uh, used car prices, uh, there was a huge distortion in in those. Uh, But also, we saw the exact opposite in the service sector because no one went to hotels. So hotel rates dropped to the roof and same with airline fares. we we are now have very much reopened the global economy, especially with China reopening, um, and a lot of those distortions are are are, are gone. Lumber prices are back to the where they were. Actually, global shipping rates are are the lowest we've seen in what twenty years. They're back to historical lows. So we we now are what's proving to be a little stickier than they the the Fed and and a lot of uh, forecasters uh, thought probably even a couple months ago, is the services inflation. It's not outrageous, but it's stickier than we thought. Mm-hmm. They, however, the the housing component was a huge reason that the the CPI and the, the PCE core price index went up so much. That's why we we're in the 7 8%. However, they, they compute that with a six-month rolling average. So we know from real-time data that house prices have, have dramatically fallen and same with rental prices in the last three, four months. It, it, we're just going to start to – that's going to start to show up in the data, the, the official BLS data in you know probably maybe February, but really it's going to be a March, uh, April kind of summertime where that's going to be a huge drag on the overall inflation. But the Fed knows this and they're kind of basically taking out 
housing, and they're looking at super core services inflation. So we've <laughs> we've cut out basically. I don't know. There's like 350 components, and I think now we're looking at like 12 to decide the the monetary policy. So they're having a very kind of difficult communication. Uh, you know, it, 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 every time that they say, "Oh, we, we're not looking at this, we're looking at that," it's like, well. Well, why don't we just look at nothing, you know? But, <laughs> right. you know. Speaking of communications, yeah, right. you, you mentioned that that dynamic you mentioned, Brendan, the confidence that the Federal Reserve and economists have in that housing component of inflation beginning to come off and, and uh, have that, uh, you know, that, uh, that waning influence uh, on the indexes. I think that that's probably one of the main uh, justifications for Fed Chair Powell's statement after the last meeting, that the disinflationary process has begun. This was something that market participants seized upon. And when the opportunity arose for him to walk back those comments at a subsequent uh, a seminar, he mm-hmm. did not. He yep. declined to do so. He reiterated them. And uh, that was, of course, before the uh, the January inflation data came in hotter than expected. And uh, and so the markets are wondering, you know, how is the Fed going to really message this uh, along with the strong growth data? And you know, there's there's certainly very hawkish messaging along with it, but uh, you know, Fed Chair Powell, the expectation is that he's probably not going to overreact to one month of data, um, as you said, Brendan. There are a lot of distortions in January weather among them, and uh, you know, the sense that that we have is the Fed is pretty far into their tightening cycle. They may not be at the top; who knows exactly where it ends? But they're quite far yeah. along. And at this point, they can afford to be a little more judicious. And uh, and that's the message we've been getting. And that's why they downshifted to the 25 basis point increments from 50 uh, and 75 before that. So we're now at 25 basis points and they're taking it at a much more yeah. measured pace. And especially on the 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 labor data because the labor data while we came in at 550,000, the the wage data was actually uh you know con- constrained, but most importantly, the wage data in January, we usually lose over a million jobs on a not seasonally adjusted basis, both through the way we start buying for Christmas, you know, in October now. Mm-hmm. So and we don't we do it online, so we don't do it so much from the big box retailers. So less people get hired in the November, December time frame. So the, the seasonal adjustment is screwed up a little bit. It plays, takes time. And then going back, we had the warmest January of all time. So you, you did a lot of stuff outside that normally you weren't be doing. So I think there was hiring that doesn't normally happen. So I think Powell and the Fed are aware of that. So they're not, they're not banking that that number is actually 550,000. That's likely to be revised down over time. Well, and just to piggyback on that, I do think speaking about how, like how this time is different than previous times is that a lot of employers got burned by how many Mm -hmm. people they lost during lockdown and reopening. And so everyone is too paranoid now to shed their payrolls by too much for the fear that when things pick up again, they'll not have enough people to fill that demand. So I think you have a lot more employers who are holding on to people when normally they would have let them go and then rehired when things got better. I think a lot more employers are more willing now to keep people on just because they don't want to be caught shorthanded when the time comes. So those last two points, what what Brian just said and your point, Brendan, of of things being a little, quote, kind of screwed up, begs a question that I've had for for a while, maybe like two years now, but which is, you know, the the readings and the data that the Fed relies on and that a lot of us rely on, we don't pay enough attention to the fact that they were really tested 
through COVID as well. And I'm curious this group's thoughts of like, you know, whether coming out of a global shutdown like we had, where literally like a light switch, we went off and then kind of back on a few months later, like are the readings, are the data, other stuff that the Fed's looking on kind of were they prepared for that? And they, are they giving the accurate readings? Has the Fed had to shift? I know it's kind of moved around a little bit on its favorite inflation rating, but has it shifted to other sets of data to get a clearer picture? Like, how has that sort of input process worked for them over the last, let's say, year? Well, certainly on the housing front, they are acknowledging publicly the the, the real time data we get from Redfin, we get from Zillow, we we get from you know all the housing components. So they're, they're they're very much acknowledge the housing. On on the other fronts, it's not quite clear. We know that they look at real time data, but it's not like they publicize exactly what no, they're looking at. They they don't. And the, I think Brendan made a joke earlier about core and super core. I think that's the world we're living now, where they keep stripping out the more volatile elements of a certain data set to try and drill down to those those elements that are a bit more not not as seasonal, right? So I think even within retail sales, there's not like a, you know, that's like core retail sales and then like the, like, it's, and it's it's getting to the point where I frankly, and I've thought this for a while, I, I, I worry that the Fed for the, for a long time, even beyond this, this crisis, has been making policy based on data that's not truly reflective of the actual state of the economy. Yeah. Right. So for example, jobs, right. all the jobs tell you is who's employed. It doesn't say, are they in a good job that actually pays enough to meet their bills? It just says they have a job, right? So Bry sweeping the streets at night, that's a job. But is that job paying enough? No, it's not. But that's not, the Fed's calculus does not incorporate these kind of additional contexts. And so I think that's where sometimes qualitative um, surveys uh, might come in handy or just to Brendan's point, real time data sets. But again, they don't really give a hint as to what else they're looking at outside of the traditional measures that we're all familiar with. Yeah, especially the like the jobs and labor turnover survey, the, the jolts has become a big one. It, mm-hmm. it's, it, it's only about 12 years old, so th- there's not that much uh, you know time frame to it. But, but also, it, it's only, I think it's a couple hundred thousand people. So statistically, it's not like massively significant. But in the last year or two, it's become a, a huge you know, uh, data point for the Fed in in judging the the strength of the labor market and, and wage gains, and then even on, on the inflation front, right? Like you have the whole debate between using the consumer price index as yeah. the the best measure or the PCE that's released as part of the I think the personal consumption or personal spending um, data set, and which one is more accurate? I think the Fed's preferred measure is the PCE price index, but again, even within that, right? It's like are there items in there? that have no business being measured in the first place, right? Uh, our watches and yachts and golf right. clubs, like, you know, like, again, we should be, I, if I was a policymaker, I would want to look at the core things that someone needs to get through their day. Mm-hmm. Food, fuel, you know, like those things, like luxury, insurance. Yeah, yeah, insurance, you know, education, yep. you know, hospital bills. But I don't think that's how it works when the Fed's making monetary policy, unfortunately. And so, which is why sometimes we get these moments when they're doing one thing and then, you know, depending on where you are on the income scale, you're either getting hit very hard or you don't feel it at all. 
we had a similar kind of problem in the uh, in the way that CPI and PPI and all of the various inflation metrics seem to fail to capture people's lived experience yeah. of prices in the low inflation era. While policymakers were panicking about prices being too low, if you went around and asked people, you know, are, are low prices a problem for you? They would say, oh, right. no. Not at all. Not even close. Yeah, exactly. No, no one child, had a problem with that. Yeah, it's yeah. child care, you know, child care, health care. And uh, and elderly care. These are the you know, and education. These are the things that have just skyrocketed yep. in price and uh, and just continue to be uh, an enormous uh, headwind to uh, to people's uh, to people's livelihoods. So I think that that is you know th- th- it's it's been a problem that's been with us uh, for a variety <laughs> in a variety of different iterations. Yeah. And I think, um, given that the point of this podcast is to discuss the role of the Fed in, you know, business, daily lives, etc. I think this is the thing, that, the list that John just gave. I don't see how higher interest rates can address any of these things. These feel like more structural problems in terms of like the availability of skilled workers, government policies, etc. And so this just, this just, this just underlines the limits to what the Fed can do when it comes to a, a productive and growing economy and why sometimes I think we put too much faith in the central bank and kind of give other policymakers a pass because they just like, all attention gets diverted to the Fed and no one ever asks, well, what is Congress or what's the administration doing to address these things? I think this is a really, really important point because the yeah. the Fed is becoming much more front and center on the news and in terms of political circles. And now is a time where the Fed's communication needs to be perfect to, to let us know exactly what's going on. Their monetary policy is not going to be perfect, but it's got to be good. They got to get us through this. But but as it's becoming more politicized and also becoming a, a, a more important, you know, government agency, uh, not just in terms of the economy, but also becoming, you know, something that's becoming politicized, it, it, it risks, you know, weakening the 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 independence and the and the strength of the Fed. Yeah, and they're coming into a pretty yeah, dangerous especially moment. if it becomes a tool of uh, of an administration, right? And we've we've seen attempts by lots of presidents to put more you know friendly appointees in the Fed. Um, and I think Brian raises a good point. It we're the media cycle right now is even sort of ignoring the fact that. Biden has very intentionally run a very hot economy, and he wanted to do that for his own political reasons and some of the social issues we we just discussed. But that has a ripple effect of now the Fed has to deal with the consequences of that and what that looks like on the inflation side. Yeah, it's it, it is. Yeah, it's the, their job is not going to get easier on the political front because uh, they are uh, quite you know, quite clearly trying to engineer a slowdown in the economy that uh, isn't necessarily going to be welcomed by the administration. Mm-hmm. You're already hearing Senator Warren and right. some other voices on Capitol Hill cautioning the Fed and saying this is just, uh, you know, to, to force people into unemployment uh, in order to uh, reach these uh, reach the inflation goal uh, is is just a poor cost benefit analysis. Now, that's just not the way the Fed thinks, but uh, shows the kind of political environment that they're going to be in. And uh, and, and it's not going to get any easier as uh, you know the expectation is that the the tightening that they've already done acts with a lag and is going to continue to weigh on the economy over the coming months and the slowdown uh, despite the 
powerful upside surprises we saw in January economic data that the slowdown is still uh, in uh, you know in train for the for the back half of this year potentially a, a recession. A lot of market indicators, including the inverted Treasury yield curve, are pointing in that direction. We've done this a few times now, even on this episode. We talk about the Fed as as sort of one one mind, and and obviously it does kind of communicate in one voice, but you three especially, uh, but maybe all of us, you know, spend a lot of hours pouring through Fed minutes and transcripts. And internally, we know there's there's a lot of different roles. There's a lot of different opinions. There's a lot of discussion about where the Federal Reserve kind of goes in terms of responding to economic conditions. So I, I think it'd be helpful for our listeners if one of you can kind of just break it down beyond beyond Chairman Powell. Let's talk about some of the other really important folks that that matter within the Fed and that folks should pay attention to, especially when they're out there speaking publicly. Um, so, yes, um, to your point, Brian, obviously you have, you have Chair Powell and you have two vice chairs, um, one what I call the regular vice chair and the other who's vice chair for supervision that sort of oversees all the thing the Fed does as it relates to regulating the, the you know, large, largest, I think, eight um, banks in, in the United States. And then you have the board members um, based here in Washington. And then you have the 12 regional Fed banks around the country that um, all at, you know, on a rotating basis get a vote on mon- monetary policy, i.e. interest rate policy every year. Um, and so I'm sure folks listening to this are familiar with, you know, clicking on CNBC, Bloomberg, or, you know, seeing it in the news and you have some Fed president you know, given their opinion on the direction of interest rates. And that usually, most of the time, tends to be a regional Fed president because they are prolific speakers that are always on the speaking circuit, either doing interviews or giving speeches at some Rotary Club or Chamber of Commerce um, somewhere around the country. Um, In terms of how much they matter, um, the first thing I would look at is, are they a voting member of the the Federal Open Market Committee Mm -hmm. that year? If the answer is no, then I would seriously downgrade whatever it is they have to say, because while they, they're able to give their opinion during the meetings, they don't get to vote. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that would be my first port of call. Outside of that, I would say during my reporting days, I once sat in on an off-the-record briefing with a president who I will not name, but he basically said, here's how you look at it. It's the chairman, the vice chair, and then the president of the New York Fed, in that order. Yeah, I totally it, agree. Because the president of the New York right. Fed has a permanent voting seat on the FOMC. So... If they, if they have an opinion on something, they get to express that opinion through a vote when the time comes. Um, and obviously, it's the job of the Fed to, the Fed chairman, I should say, to sort of get consensus, ideally move the board and preferably the whole FOMC in the direction he or she wants them to. But yeah, I would say Fed chairman, vice chair, New York Fed president, in my in my opinion. And the New York Fed also has the trading desk for the, the Fed. So they have insights into financial markets that your average uh, regional Fed branch does not. We learned this in, in 08, right, with Geithner's and obviously later became Treasury Secretary, but yeah. played such an important role in the crisis part of that that area yeah. um, I mean, as New York Fed president. One thing I will flag, though, is that there's a tendency, especially among the board members, depending on when they were, when they were nominated and confirmed, is that you might end up with a board sometimes that is a mix of Republican nominees and Democrat nominees. 
And then on those occasions, you might get some disagreement. Um, I forget when, it was either 09 or 2010, when Bernanke first started doing quantitative easing, I think Kevin Walsh mm-hmm. and maybe two others dissented. Yep. If I, I think it was like three dissents, which is like a very rare thing to happen in recent memory for three board members dissent because quantitative easing was such a new thing and there was this like, Oh, you're, you're you're sparking inflation, and you know. So, but yeah, so there are there are, there is possibility if you have a mix of political backgrounds on the board that you might get some dissent. But and and, and to to bring it to this Fed, uh, with Lael Brainerd going over to the White House, we're going to have a few meetings uh, without yeah. her voice, which was a very strong, not overly dovish, but more dovish compared to some of the hawkish voices that just won't be there. Um, that vote's not going to happen until the the seat is filled. Yeah, and the uh, and the the Austin Goolsby uh, nomination. There's a discussion about his political, you know, his political background, mm-hmm. and he's been an outspoken critic of GOP economic policies in certain cases, and uh, obviously linked with the Obama administration, um, uh, given his position there, and a sense that you know this is a follow on from to some extent from the Trump administration's Judy Shelton adventure, and uh, where she was seen as sort of a creature of yep. Trump, mm-hmm. and uh, this was. It it definitely caused some uh, some furrowed brows, I think, in the uh, in the yeah. in the monetary community and uh, in the macro community. So it it seems to be you know a a trend. Uh, you know, President Trump was pretty plain about it. I want my people on the Fed, and mm-hmm. uh, the Fed is an extremely powerful institution. And so uh, you could see the political justification quite clearly. He certainly didn't uh, you know hide his cards on that yeah. particular play. Yeah. Exactly. So I was going to wrap up with with the question on what, you know, our listeners in particular should, should look out for maybe over the next, you know, nine months, year or so as presumably the fed wraps up its, its uh, rate hike cycle. And, and I think we've talked about on our other podcast that 2024 might actually bring some cuts. Um, One of the areas I wanted to ask was Brainerd's replacement, but maybe we can just quickly, Kind of go around the table here. What what is something each of you is looking out for over the rest of the year that will have a big impact on the Fed and its response uh, to where we are right now? So I think the election next year for me is is the biggest factor because even if they stop raising rates, their commitment to keeping them at an elevated level for a while until they're reasonably under they're confident that you know they've won the battle against inflation. How would that drive if you're seeing, you know, lots of job losses, slowing economic activity? And, you know, as John said, you know, more and more senators, especially on the Democratic side, because I do believe that the Democrats are defending the Senate next year. They have more seats to defend than to go after. And yes. so, you know, that puts them in a position where they need a scapegoat. And there's no easier scapegoat than a central bank because a lot of people out there don't understand what the Fed does, but there's a lot of distrust about what the Fed does. And so I think how does the Fed navigate that while still maintaining their independence and not making it seem like if they were to cut rates next year, avoiding accusations that they're doing it purely for political reasons and not because rate cuts are required. Yeah, I think for me, one of the things that uh, I've got circled is the debt ceiling issue. And, uh, you know, the there's been some discussion. We had uh, President Biden meeting with uh, with Speaker McCarthy. But since then, things have gone a little bit quiet, and uh, the except for the you know 
estimates uh, continuing to pop out about when uh, the Treasury will exhaust their uh, their extraordinary measures to keep the government funded. And uh, so everybody's looking at kind of this late spring, early summer kind of time frame as the X date it does move around. It would be helpful if it uh, if it were actually fixed to a particular date. They don't have that. Uh, they don't have that luxury. Uh, and so we're looking at, uh, you know, market expectations have moved a lot over the past month. And, uh, you know, going from an expectation that the Fed would struggle to get rates above 5% uh, in, a, in the face of a weakening economy and rapidly cooling inflation, well, the January figures really seem to uh, change the market's minds on that front. The Fed had been trying to do that with uh, their communications, but markets weren't listening until you started getting upside uh, economic surprises in inflation and growth uh, in the January figures. Now, futures markets have the Fed going above, you know, up to five and a half percent, which is 75 basis points more in uh, in hikes. And those would be, you know, rates would be topping out uh, right around the, you know, the the May, June kind of time frame, just when the debt ceiling excitement is going to be getting to a fever pitch, potentially. The Fed is also, we haven't really talked about it, um, the quantitative easing that uh, Brian mentioned before, which is asset purchases, is now in reverse. Mm -hmm. It's quantitative tightening. They're not selling, but they're letting the balance sheet, the assets roll off the balance sheet uh, to a uh, relatively rapid degree. Yeah, it happens a lot quicker than people realize. Yeah, about $100 a month. Now, that's not the only game in town when it comes to market liquidity. You've got the reverse repos. You've got the Treasury general account and, uh, you know, just other uh, financial uh, conditions alongside it. But it's in that sort of in, in the background, it's that tightening, and it's involved with treasury markets. And there's a question about, you know, whether the Fed can keep up a quantitative tightening pace, uh, and uh, and maybe you know add a few rate hikes into that sort of June timeframe if the debt ceiling is really uh, looking like uh, you know an, a, a serious game of chicken on Capitol Hill. Uh, for me, it's the oil markets. Um, I think it's just a huge wild card with the whole situation in Russia, the price caps, and then China reopening. Um, Just on Wall Street, there's just a huge uh, discrepancy between, uh, you know, uh, oil outlooks. Some think it's going to 150 and something we're going to plunge to 50. Uh, And that's going to play a big role in uh, in monetary policy. or maybe we just stay where we are. <laughs> yeah, oil prices have been – just as an aside, oil prices have been completely numb to the big rally in, in equities in January and equally numb to the big sell-off in February. And overnight – And also got, to rates too. Yeah, we got yeah. a scalding hot uh, purchasing managers index data yeah. out of China and you know copper and industrial metals jumped as you would expect and oil did nothing. It nothing. went down. Uh, it's a really weird uh, situation. The, uh, the you know analysts are still – I think generally looking for upside risk, and uh, but you know the market doesn't seem to be expressing it at least not at yet. all. No. Yeah. Well, you guys have left us with uh, a lot to keep an eye on this year. <laughs> that's uh, those are three heavy, heavy topics. But um, let's uh, leave it there. I want to thank you guys for for joining and and taking a, a little bit of time to unpack some of these big issues that that folks are paying attention to in the news. And uh, for our listeners, if you're one of those listeners who tunes into what's at stake but hasn't yet checked out Macrocast, you can find these guys every Friday uh, diving deep in uh, into the Fed issues and the other ac- macroeconomic news of the week. I encourage you to check it out. 
Uh, and for those of you who listen to both, thank you for, for supporting us. Uh, and we'll be back next week with another edition of What's at Stake. I'm your host, Brian DeAngelis. Thanks for tuning in.